sing that one more time, just our voices, just our voices on the chorus. Praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one. God of glory, majesty, praise forever to the King. here for you this morning. We love you. Thank you for coming to be among us, to revive the hearts of your people, to refocus our gaze on Jesus Christ, your son. There is none more beautiful. There is none more lovely. Lord, draw us deeper this morning. We're after you today. We want you. You are the glorious one. You are the majestic one. Lord, we pray now through your word to continue to lead us in worship. We want to keep worshiping you with our minds as we worship you with our mouths this morning. God, lead us. We love you. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name we worship. Amen. You may be seated. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open up to Mark chapter 12. We're picking up right where we left off last week in this series that we've titled, Follow Me. Mark chapter 12, we're going to jump into verse 28. If you have a Bible, follow along. If not, you can look up on the screen. Mark 12, 28 to the end of the chapter. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no one besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength. And to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, 
this poor widow has put in more than all those who were contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. When was the last time you felt totally consumed? Maybe it was a a job you had or a certain responsibility that took all of your thoughts and energy. Maybe you were preparing for some kind of test, something that just took over all of you. I'm sure that all of us can think in the not-so-distant past of a, of a time in our life when we felt consumed. When I think about being consumed, my mind goes to the few uh, summers that I spent working at summer camp. Uh, Ridgecrest is a summer camp. It's a 10-week-long camp. It's an overnight camp where the boys come and stay for two weeks at a time. And when you drive through those gates to be a counselor for a summer at summer camp, uh, there is no clocking in and clocking out. Uh, there is no deciding what's for dinner. You become camp, and camp becomes you. At the end of the summer, uh, all the people that work there, they all kind of smell the same. They all kind of look the same. You all start talking the same. It's just one long, eventful summer of smelly, wonderful, joyful, blissful happiness. As we've been working through the Gospel of Mark, we are realizing that what it means to be a Christian is actually far more than we originally thought. Christianity isn't just one more addition to our already busy lives. Christianity isn't the side garnish that we add to our already pretty full plate. Christianity isn't just one more event that we add onto our our calendar or one more box that we add onto our to-do list. Christianity is a fully immersive, completely all-or-nothing experience. Following Jesus is all-consuming. Jesus said it to us this way back in chapter 8. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. But there's something that we have to be really clear about this morning. And it's this, that denying ourselves and taking up our cross and following Jesus is actually part of the free gift of God's grace. That being immersed, being baptized, being totally owned by Jesus Christ isn't just one more thing that we have to do. It's actually Jesus inviting us to let him lead our chaotic, crazy lives that we can't figure out on our own. So this is what we're going to do today. Through the end of Mark chapter 12, Jesus is going to show us what a life under his ownership looks like. This is true Christianity. This is the real, immersed, baptized, fully consumed life with Jesus that he's going to paint this picture for us. And I hope what you see by the end is that to be consumed in Jesus, to be immersed, to be baptized, really is the most beautiful life. That it really is the most free life. So we got four things that we're going to see about 
what this baptized, immersed, consumed life looks like. The first is this, that Jesus sets our priorities. Jesus sets our priorities. Uh, in chapter 12 up to this point, if you've been tracking with us, we've seen a number of people come up and ask Jesus questions. But most of the people that are asking these questions of Jesus are doing it to try to trick him. But this man, this scribe, this teacher of the law, uh, he seems to be coming up to Jesus with sincerity. And he's asking Jesus the question of priorities. This is how he puts it in verse 28. He says, which commandment is the most important of all? In other words, with all the different things coming into our lives, with all the different things crashing in, telling us what we ought to think is important, Jesus is about to tell us what God thinks is important. This is God's priority list for our lives. This is what he says in verse 29 and 30. Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The most important command the most important thing that a human being can do, the top priority for all of us is to love God. But Jesus doesn't just say to love God a little bit. He doesn't just say to put God first. Jesus describes the greatest, most important priority in our lives in an all-consuming way. He says to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And there's two very important reasons that he gives for why this love for God must be all-consuming. Why it must be a singular devotion. The first is this. In verse 29, Jesus tells us that the Lord is one. There's only one Lord. There's only one God. There's only one who made you. There's only one who is truly good. There's only one who's truly beautiful. All the other good things in the world, all the other beautiful things in the world, they get their goodness and their beauty from him. But he alone is the Lord, and he alone made us for himself. There's one God, and because there's one God, he deserves singular devotion. But the second thing is this. We are to love this God in an all-consuming way because, as it says in verse 30, he is the Lord, our God. This one God is our God. He is our Lord. In other words, we love God because God first loved us. We go all in with him because he first went all in with us. Um, when Allie and I, um, most of you know Allie, my wife, when Allie and I hit our first year dating anniversary, um, I was about to spend more money on a girl than I ever had in my life. And I was uh, coming up on this anniversary, and I wanted to get her this necklace. But I had this moment where I thought, you know, I don't know if I'm supposed to do this. How much money should you spend on a first-year dating anniversary when you're in college? You know, I don't know. So I called my dad, and I said, Dad, I'm about to buy this necklace and it's our first year, coming up on the first year, and this is how much I'm about to spend, you know, hundreds and hundreds of dollars. I said, yeah, is that okay? Am I allowed to spend that much money, you know, for a first-year dating anniversary? And I'll, I'll never forget, there was a pause, and all he said back was, well, son, how much is she worth? 
Needless to say, I bought the necklace. (laughs) Today, Jesus is looking at us, and, and he's asking the question, how much is God worth? How much is God worth? And the only appropriate response is everything. All, all the heart, all the soul, all the mind, all the strength. Why? Because he's worth our all. Now, in one sense, we should feel very convicted by this command. Because there is not one of us in this room who has spent one day obeying this command to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. So we should feel convicted. Like, God, I can't do this. And yet, at the same time, in this command, we should feel loved. Because in it, we learn what we were made for. We learn who Jesus was in our place for our salvation. And we learn where Jesus is taking those who put their trust in him. In other words, the commands, especially the summary like this, this big, huge, top priority command... It drives us to the gospel when we realize that we can't keep it and we realize that we are nothing but sinners before God. We run to Jesus and we cry out for mercy and it's in the gospel that we find grace where he lived a perfect life in our place. He loved God wholeheartedly and said, all you have to do is trust me and it's yours. And then out from the gospel, he sends us back to the commands and now in freedom, we can say, God, I love you and I'm gonna give you everything I have even if it might not be what you need it to be I'm going to give you everything I possibly can. The commands leads us to the gospel, and then the gospel drives us back to the commands. Now, before moving on to this next section, we need to notice that when the man asked Jesus about the top priority, Jesus responds with two commands. He says in verse 31, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these Jesus is saying that if we prioritize God, if we put him first and we love him with our all, then it will inevitably lead to us loving other people as we love ourselves. That question, how much is she worth? Well, when we ask that about God, how much is he worth? He is worth our all. And when we ask the same question about our neighbor, how much is my neighbor worth? Jesus wants us to respond, my neighbor is worth myself. So however fast I run out to take care of myself, that's how fast I should run out to take care of my neighbor. However fast I jump in to take care of my own needs, that's how fast I should jump in to take care of my neighbor's needs. And who is my neighbor? Jesus told a great parable about that. He said, essentially, your neighbor is whoever is right in front of your face in that moment. Your neighbor this afternoon might be your wife. Your neighbor might be your kids. Your neighbor might be your actual neighbor. Jesus is saying the second commandment, which flows from the first, is this, that what's called of us is to love that person to the same degree that we take care of and pursue our own good. Now, with each of our points this morning, we're not just going to ask what. So it's not just what our priorities are. The big question is, who is it in your life who has the authority to set the priorities that you follow? Who actually gets the last say with what is most important in your life? Real Christianity, baptized, immersed, consumed in Jesus, 
It is Christ who sets our priorities. It is, it is Jesus who gets to tell us what is most important. But now we're going to see that Jesus isn't just Lord over our priorities. He's Lord over the truth. Some people might be thinking, yes, like finally that sermon about love. We just need to love everybody. Who cares? All this doctrine, theology, what we believe in. We just need to love people. Not so fast. Secondly, Jesus establishes our beliefs. We're not just interested in ethics. Jesus is also the great theologian. After being asked a number of questions himself, Jesus now turns and he starts asking the questions. Verse 35 says, And Jesus taught in the temple, and he said, How can the scribes say that Christ is the Son of David? So the scriptures clearly teach that the Messiah, who is coming into the world to be the Savior, would come from the line of David. He would be David's son. But what Jesus is going to push on here is that this Messiah is fully man, but he is not merely man. Verse 36 and 37, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? The key that David's trying to, or excuse me, the, the key that Jesus is trying to draw our attention to is the fact that in Psalm 110, David talks about two people, that's four, two people that are both named Lord. And one of them is the Messiah, who will be David's great-great-great-great-grandson. He's saying, yes, it is true that the Messiah will come from my line, but I worship that Messiah as Lord because he existed before me. The Messiah, Jesus, who came into the world, is very eternal God. And that's why David, hundreds of years before Jesus was even born into the world, could call him Lord. So let's try to paint the picture of how weird this would be if it was anyone but Jesus. It's great for a grandfather to love his grandson. It's great for a grandfather to take pride in his grandson. It's great for a grandfather to want to lead out his legacy through his grandson. But it would be absurd for a grandfather to call his grandson Lord. Uh, most of y'all here know Ronnie Bird, my father. And most of you have seen my son Benjamin Bird running around. Uh, Ronnie Bird loves Benjamin Bird. Uh, Ronnie Bird takes pride in Benjamin Bird. Ronnie Bird wants to see his legacy lived out through Benjamin Bird. But guys, if Ronnie Bird starts calling Benjamin Bird his Lord, we will have a problem. Right, the reason that David called him Lord is because though he was going to be born into the world as his son, he was very God of very God, existent from eternity past. So what difference does it make if Jesus is God? Well, it makes all the difference in the world. There is no Christianity if Jesus is not God. And there is no more centrally defining truth that, than that while Jesus is, yes, fully man, he is also completely, 100% very God of very God. There's four major things. There's four major things that hinge on the fact that Jesus is God. The first one's this. If Jesus is God, then we must obey him. When he speaks, God speaks. When he commands, it is God who commands. The second is this. If Jesus is God, then he is the object of our faith. He's the one we look to. He's the one we put our trust in. He's the one we hope in. He is our rock. He is our refuge. It is Jesus who we put our trust in because he is holy, eternal God. 
Third is this, if Jesus is God, then he is our sufficient salvation. He is our sufficient salvation. When Jesus died, and he died for all of our sins, how was he able to do that? How could he represent all of us? When Jesus absorbed into his very body the wrath of God, which was equal to an eternal punishment, how is it that one man could absorb something that was eternal? It is by virtue of the fact that he is God that he could take all of our sins. It is by virtue of the fact that he is God that he could take the eternal punishment into himself and satisfy it forever. We need someone to represent us, which means that the Messiah Messiah had to be a man, but we also needed someone to redeem us, which means that the Messiah also had to be God. We needed one man who was fully God, fully man, and that is who Jesus was claiming himself here to be. And finally, we can't miss this in light of the the previous section of Scripture. If Jesus is God, then it is right for us to worship him. We love Jesus with all of our heart, in all of our soul, in all of our mind, in all of our strength. Why? Because that is what he's worth. He deserves our highest affection. Now remember the big question we're trying to ask here is not just what we believe, but who is it? Who is it that determines our beliefs? Look how Jesus is interacting with these people. He's saying, where did you guys get this stuff from? I'm the one who sets the beliefs. I'm the one who comes in and tells you what truth is. So who in your life sets your beliefs? Who tells you what's true and what's false? There has never been a time in our society when we needed more to recover the reality of truth. Truth is like a skeleton. Uh, Truth is like a backbone. Without it, we just turn into a jellyfish and we just fall apart. That's what we see happening, right? Everybody's right and everybody's wrong because who gets to decide who's right and who's wrong? It's in the eye of the beholder. And if we keep acting like truth is what we decide it is, then we're just going to keep imploding. We need God in, in the person of Jesus Christ to come into our lives and tell us what truth is, to confront us with the reality of right and wrong. Stop making it up for ourselves. Now, as we move to the next section, we're going to see what will go wrong if Jesus isn't the one setting our priorities and he isn't the one establishing our beliefs. If these foundational aspects of our existence don't come from him, then the way we live our lives will be warped, twisted, and hollow. And so third, Jesus determines our behavior. Jesus determines our behavior. After questioning the scribes, Jesus turns to them and gives them a scathing rebuke. Look how he just opens it up. He says, beware of the scribes. Uh, A warning is something that exists to help us. A warning comes in, and, it, and it, it shows us, hey, there is danger up ahead. And warnings hurt. When you receive a warning, it, it hurts a little bit, but it hurts far less than the thing being warned about. And so I hope this morning we can feel the love of Jesus, even as this is going to hurt. This is going to hurt. And yet Jesus is loving us by warning us. Verses 38 through 40. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, 
who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. So what is Jesus warning us about? What is the red flashing light here from Jesus to us? Jesus is warning us that the desire to look good based upon the clothes we wear and the outer appearance that we portray to the world around us is not just an innocent style preference, that it is a sinful desire to be worshipped. Jesus is warning us that the desire to have other people to see us and take note of us and show their appreciation our way is not just an innocent pat on the back. It is a sinful desire to be praised. Jesus is warning us that placing our identity in plaques on our walls and titles beside our names and even official positions in the church is not just an innocent self-indulgence. It is a desire to be exalted above others. Jesus is warning us that if we're not careful, our desires to earn other people's approval will actually lead us to do evil things that will become easier and easier and easier for us to self-justify. And Jesus is warning us that even our religious life, even the things that are the most intimate to us, like even our prayer life, that even those things are not off limits to the corruption of our hearts. As we begin to do things like worship and pray and give with an eye to the way that people are watching us and evaluating our lives. If you were to sum this whole thing up, this is what Jesus is teaching us. He's warning us about allowing our lives to become a show. Because if our lives become a show, then we are a slave to whoever the audience is. Whoever it is that most determines our behavior, that is who our real God is. A couple years ago, uh, went on a baseball trip. I love baseball. love watching baseball live. It's great on the TV, but it's something else to, to be there. Uh, two summers ago, I was at a game, and um, I noticed on one of the teams, there was a, a player who had just been called up from the minor leagues. And it was like after every single swing, he immediately looked back into the dugout, and it was as if he was trying to uh, see whether or not he had done a good job or not. After every single swing, for three or four at-bats, every time he would just look right back into the dugout. I remember thinking to myself, man, it must be really hard to, to be something like a Major League Baseball player. We've got all those people watching you. They're keeping up with all those stats. They're constantly evaluating how you're doing. You know, that must be, be so hard. And then it hit me, you know, I actually kind of live my life that way most of the time. I'm always kind of looking back over my shoulder, wondering who's watching and how do they think about me. I'm always feeling like I need somebody to, to, to tell me whether I'm doing a, a good job or, or doing a bad job. And we might think, okay, well, what's the big deal? You know, guy looking over his shoulder at a baseball game or even, even something like, you know, so what? I pray, when I pray in front of people, I try to sound like I'm spiritually mature, you know? What's the big deal? Well, what we have to see is that the problem here is not just what Jesus is warning us about, but it's why he's warning us. Why? Why are the red lights flashing from Jesus when it comes to living before the eyes of others? A few things. One is that it feels natural. Looking good, elevating ourselves, being put on a platform, having our, back, our backs padded, 
It feels so good. And yet that is exactly what sin does to things. Sin makes our hearts approve of things that we shouldn't. And it makes our hearts hate things that we should love. Let me put in just like one little, one little easy thing for you. The next time you change outfits 13 times before walking out the door, just ask yourself, why am I doing this? Who am I honestly living for? And guys, the next time you run your truck through the car wash for the third time in one week, ask yourself, why am I doing this? Who am I honestly living for? So it feels natural, but it also isn't innocent. You know, we think, ah, oh, what's the big deal? You know, it doesn't hurt anybody. You know, live for, live for other people. I'm not, I'm not affecting you. Like, what I, you know, what, I, what I'm doing with my life doesn't actually affect you. In God's opinion, it does. See, when we actually live for the approval of others, we're actually asking them to break the first commandment. We're asking them to show a little bit of that love in our direction, to, to delight in us just, just a little bit, to, to put us up on a pedestal just, just a little bit. Another thing is this, and this, these kind of work in descending order. If we live uh, our lives as a show, if we live our lives as a performance in front of the opinions of others, it will eventually ruin our lives. We'll start to do things that we didn't think we would. Cheat in areas that we maybe wouldn't have cheated before. Bully people around that we used to would not have. Start telling little white lies that maybe turn into to bigger lies as time goes on. Why? Because all along it's trying to keep up the appearance. All along it's trying to look like things are different than they really are. And eventually, like Jesus said in these passages, next thing you know, we're devouring widows' houses, and we're justifying it by saying that we're doing a religious service. But in reality, we've just sunk so far down that in trying so hard to look beautiful before other people, we've actually just become really rotten and ugly. But then the most important why, the, the thing that should, should I, I pray this morning, I hope, I hope you could hear this from the mouth of Jesus and feel just a, just a little bit of sting, just a little bit of wake-up call. I pray the Holy Spirit would work in our hearts right now to, to hear this. Jesus tells us that if we live our lives for the approval of others, we will receive what he calls the greater condemnation. The greater condemnation. In other words, when we live our lives before the approval of others, we are putting them in the place that only God deserves to be. And that means that God is not really our God. The greater condemnation. I'm going to let you work that out with the Lord. The reason that the behavior of the scribes was twisted because the gate was because the gaze of their hearts was twisted. Whoever it is, that determines our behavior, that truly is our God. But I love how Mark doesn't just, just leave us there today. Uh, in stark contrast to these scribes who live for the approval of others, he opens up this vision of how Jesus interacts with this poor widow 
Which leads to our final point for the day, that Jesus defines our significance. Jesus defines our significance. Look at how Mark opens up this scene in verse 41. Just going to make a brief comment about it. And he, talking about Jesus, he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Jesus, sitting, observing, watching, assessing. This is a helpful image for us to understand how real life works. This is why all throughout the Bible, God tells us that the beginning of knowledge and the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. That nothing in life will actually make sense. Nothing will come together the way God intended it to until we realize that it's Jesus' opinion that really matters. That he's the one sitting on the judgment seat. And what he determines about our lives is really what matters. Let's get into the specifics. Pick up in the middle of verse 41. This is, this is what we see. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Two major contrasts, and then there's a final judgment, a final deliberation from Jesus. The first contrast is between the many rich people and the one poor widow. They all had the power. They all had so much to give. They had all the potential to make a difference. They could actually add value to the life of the temple. She had no power. She had so little to give. She had zero potential to make a practical difference. She actually could add no value to the life of the temple. And then there's the contrast between all their large sums and her two small copper coins. The large sums kept things moving. The large sums went to help people. The large sums weighed more and the large sums were worth more. The two coins effectively made no difference. The two coins could not have lifted one burden off the back of anyone. The two coins weighed nothing, and the two coins were worth significantly less. And so then Jesus, the judge, he calls his disciples over to him, and with them today, we get to see heaven's perspective. We get to see how God views real life. Guys, this is discipleship. We talk about discipleship around here. This is discipleship. All of those who've been baptized, immersed, dunked down into Jesus, being radically reoriented around what matters to him instead of what matters to us. And so this is what Jesus says. This is the decision from the eternal king, the judge of the universe. She put in more. 
can he say that? Why does Jesus see the same thing we see? And what he sees is he sees the poor widow with the two small copper coins and says, she put in more. It's because Jesus, the eternal king, the, the judge of the universe, he is the one who determines real significance. He is the one in the end of all things that will decide what was valuable and what was empty. In his book, Managing Money God's Way, sorry, that is not the title of the book. The title of the book is Managing God's Money. Randy Alcorn says, Financial planners try to convince people to look ahead instead of focusing on today or this month. Think 30 years from now, they'll say. Then they'll share with you ways to do that by planning, budgeting, saving, contributing to an IRA, investing in this mutual fund or that real estate partnership. But the truth is, thinking 30 years ahead is only slightly less short-sighted than thinking 30 days ahead. Christ, the ultimate investment counselor, says, don't ask how your investment will be paying off in just 30 years. Ask how it will be paying off in 30 million years. Wise people, according to Jesus, think ahead not just to their retirement years, but to eternity. In the end, net worth must be judged on Jesus' scale. When Jesus judges, what he looks at is how much was the heart worth? How much did the heart give? And I tell you what, man, we got some, we've got some poor widows in this church who I would storm the gates of hell with. Way to go. Man, I love it. We've got some people in this church that are giving their all, and it's really cool to see. Keep it up. Way to go. Thank you. The Lord sees it. He sees the little bit, and he knows that just like, just like this woman knew, she knew who her God was. She knew how faithful he was. She knew that God would provide. She knew that God had forgiven her, that God had invited her into a relationship with him. And so it was out of the abundance of her heart that she put everything she had in. Because that's real Christianity. That's true, all-consuming, baptized, immersed into Jesus, real-life Christianity. Or in response to who God is, in response to his faithfulness, in response to the fact that he sent his only son into the world to live and die and rise for our sins, we stop asking, how much do I have to give? And we start saying, Lord, everything I have is yours. It all belongs to you. You gave it all to me anyways. So I offer myself totally, completely, wholly up to you. That is real significance. If you want your life to count, that is what Jesus sees. That is what he is telling us today. Remember, what we're after is not just what significance is, but who. Who defines our significance? Christians find our value. We find our significance from Jesus. It's like the old hymn says, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love 
so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Man, isn't that beautiful? Isn't that what we want from our lives? The last last little image I want to leave in your mind today in conclusion is one of the one of the dominant pictures that the Bible gives for our lives. The Bible talks about this relationship between the clay and the potter. A piece of clay, if you've ever seen, I'm sure we've all seen it. We've all seen a, a potter. Maybe, maybe you've done it even. But you know, it just starts, it's just this, it's just this lump of clay on a on a slab. It's just bumpy and unformed and um, ready, ready to be molded, ready to be made into something. And then the potter sits down and he, and he puts his hands you know, down on the clay and he starts to mold and he starts to shape and he can form that clay into anything he wants. And that is how we're supposed to view our lives. We're supposed to view our lives like this, this malleable, moldable lump of clay we're just, this, we're just dust and water, and we're sitting there. When you view your life, when you think about your life right now, today, this is the question I want us all to ask ourselves. Whose hands do you actually see molding your life? What is actually shaping you? What is actually controlling you, molding you, forming you? It will be something. And the invitation from Jesus, as we've been working through the Gospel of Mark, is this. That when he says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What he's really saying is, if you come to me, I'll take your hands off of the clay, where you keep strangling and choking and wrecking your life, and I'll put my hands down, and I'll take over, and I'll become Lord, and I will own you, and when I own you, I will make you beautiful. I will make you into what God intended you to be, a person who loves God and a person who loves others. Jesus is inviting us today to have him the King, the Lord, to take over and make us who He intended us to be. Something is going to form our lives. Something is going to control us. And anything other than Jesus, anything other than Him, will completely wreck us. But if this woman is any indication, when Jesus takes over and he, and he has everything, that is true freedom. That is real, beautiful life the way God intended it to be. Let's pray and then we're going to worship. Lord, this morning we confess, yes, yes, Lord, that we need to be saved from our sins. Lord, we need your forgiveness. 
If it weren't for Jesus, the God-man, standing in our place, we would be utterly lost. The greater condemnation that Jesus talked about here would be aimed directly at our lives. But Lord, this morning, we also need to be saved from ourselves. God, if it, God, I know myself. I know that so many times I've thought, no, my way's better. I thought, no, I, no, I understand how life works. No, no, I know what real significance is. And every time, Lord, I fall flat on my face, every time I just, I just wreck it all over again. And so I pray this morning that you'd give us soft hearts. Lord, help us to see your kingship, your lordship, your ownership over our lives as wonderfully good news. Lord, help our hearts to be thrilled at the idea of being totally baptized, totally immersed, totally consumed with Jesus Christ. God, we need your power. Do it in us, please, we pray, by your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we worship. Amen.